0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. For some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it could already be Friday. But for most of us, and especially where I'm living, it's still Thursday. But I'm glad that uh, come tomorrow it will be Friday. Here we are again discussing the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. And in this um, episode that we're going to be discussing... We're going to uh, learn about the um, initial uh, Coast Guard search and rescue efforts. We are also going to learn about the history behind Rogers City and for whom uh, Rogers City is named after. And for what um, line of work was first introduced into uh, Rogers City before the uh, shipping industry um, made its uh, presence known. But we're also going to learn about um, we're also going to learn about just how close uh, one ship may have gotten to the survivors. Now, I don't want to give any of too much away, but at the same time, I want all of you, my fellow listeners, to have a, a good understanding of what we're going to be uh, learning about, not just in this episode, but I feel it's important to give each of you some kind of um, broad um understanding of what you're going to be learning about because if that's not given to you all then how are you going to know what it is that you're going to be learning per each uh, episode um, of the uh, topic that we are uh, currently uh, or rather that we've been currently uh, discussing about so we're going to um, begin with our first leadoff question I don't expect any of you all to know who this man's name is but he does play an important role I think it's fair to say that anybody who um, who makes a living not just making a living off of working on the waters but even uh, whether it's a captain of a um, of a ship that is part of the Bradley uh, fleet or even a a captain who uh, a captain or a lieutenant who serves on the United States Coast Guard who is assisting in this uh, search and rescue effort now I should keep in mind that maybe it's too soon to say that it's search and rescue, but even if it hasn't been officially declared as search and rescue, we still, in a way, can call it search and rescue because there are other um, crew people going out to uh, assist in the greater um, mission. In other words, okay, we have crew people missing aboard a ship but we have to send other people out there to search for them. So, is it fair to say that we might also learn in this episode about how the news itself is um, going to be relayed? I think it's fair to say that. Of course, we should keep in mind that um, how people get the word out about news in 1958 is not the same as it is in today's 24-hour technological uh, advanced world where news can be accessed at any time. I don't want to give too much of that away, but there again that's something else I'm going to throw out right now so that all of you are aware of what will be discussed from a uh, greater context in this episode. So, Who is the first person we're going to learn about in this uh, episode? His name is Harold Muth, or you could say Muth, but the way it's pronounced is M-U-T-H. Harold Muth. Does anybody want to know exactly who he is and why he's important? Well, Harold Muth is a U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant commander who's in charge of a ship known as the Sundew, this ship is stationed in Charlevoix, which is in the western part of Michigan, uh, just north of Traverse City, as I had mentioned from the uh, previous uh, podcast. And what helps Captain Muth out is that he's—he only lives about five minutes from the Charlevoix station, so he has—he has, um, he has uh, an easy way to access information not just information in general, but access information about this particular um, incident. However, uh, no one at the Charlevoix station knows of the Bradley status, but they are aware that a German freighter, aka the Christian Sartori, wasn't far away from the Bradley and was currently en route to the, se- to the site where the Bradley sunk. So, basically, you know, let's say you're uh, a part of the Coast Guard crew or a Coast Guard team at Char- at the Charlevoix Station. You do have some form of news in that there is a another ship uh, not far from the Sartori, I mean, not far from the Bradley, pardon me, and the Sartori was only about three and a half miles away. And, of course, we have to remember that the Sartori herself was not immune from the um, inclement weather that uh, rather the brutal weather that had uh, wreaked havoc on Lake Michigan's waters that day of November 18th, 1958. However, the Charlevoix station does not know about the Bradley status. In other words, nobody there knows that the Bradley had actually sunk. No one knows that there are a plethora of crewmen missing how old is the u.s coast guard cutter aka the sundew did you hear that folks a u.s coast guard um, cutter ship does anybody know what u.s coast guard cutter ships are designed for they are designed for uh, breaking ice along the great lakes waters and there are plenty of other um, cutter ships that you know often break ice in the arctic or around the arctic ocean and around antarctica as well they're designed to help break the ice so that comes springtime that the uh, shipping that the ships will be ready maybe if not all ships but some ships will be ready to um to take um, flight to the waters and still be able to have and have some form of um navigable um, access way along the uh, great lakes waters so that is the um one of the primary um, functions of this uh, ship the sundew is that she is uh, an ice cutter but as for her age anybody want to take a guess at that is she um is she 20 years old is she um less than 20 or is she 25 years old Well, the answer is choice B. She's less than 20 years old. She's actually 14 years old. She was commissioned on August the 24th of 1944, uh, two months uh, after uh, D-Day in Normandy. Uh, Besides removing buoys from the Great Lakes waters, uh, other um, besides, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, Besides uh, removing buoys from Great Lakes waters to uh, serving as an icebreaker or an uh, ice cutter, another one of her duties is to um, assist in aid to navigation missions as well as uh, lighthouse maintenance purposes. So this is a ship, folks, that is designed for aid to navigation missions where, where the crew to a ship is not only missing, but her ship is in peril, her ship has sunk, so this is the right ship to use. It's not so much that this is the right ship to use. It's probably fair to say that this is probably the most viable ship that can uh, leave um, leave its station to go out into these waters that are just, um, what do you call it, over 60-mile-an-hour winds. Well, let's learn a little bit more about the Sundew's history. Uh, prior to 1958, um, The Sundew had been located in Manitowoc, Milwaukee, and Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. Had the um, Sundew had any kind of um, big mission um, tasks prior to what she is about to face in the present moment? Yes. Uh, Eleven years earlier, in 1947, uh, the Sundew... um, the crew of the Sundew rescued 28 men on the Jupiter. The Jupiter was an oar boat, or rather I should say an iron ore boat. The Sundew towed the Jupiter, being a 3,000 ton vessel to safety. Well, it pays to have a ship that has a good, not only just has a good record, but has been able to step up to the plate when it matters most. I guess the bigger question is, Can the uh, sundew make it out in enough time and save other crewmen who um, did not, who weren't able to make it aboard the the raft that Elmer Fleming, Frank Mays, Gary Strezelecki, and Dennis Meredith are uh, currently on? Given the Bradley had sunk 12 miles southwest of Gull Island, how many miles, including hours, will it take for the sundew to reach the Bradley wreckage site? Does anybody want to take a guess at exactly just how how um, far the mileage is from Charlevoix to um, the wreckage site being 12 miles southwest of Goal Island? Is it 75 miles? Is it between 45 and 50 miles? Or is it um, 25 miles? The answer is choice B, uh, between 45 and 50 miles, and with the um, most definitive answer being between 45 and 50 is that it's uh, 47 miles, the wreckage site is 47 miles from the Charlevoix station. But with the winds from the southwest clocking just over 60 miles an hour, Lieutenant Commander Harold Muth believes that the mission upon arrival will take between four to five hours. Four to five hours, folks. I mean, and think about this. You're dealing with winds out of the southwest over 60 miles an hour. Is it fair to say that um, that this ship will not be immune from anything that could uh, come her way? Say, like, you know, um, sea spray, those aerosol particles that can... Um, knock a person down or can um, cause damage to the outside of a a ship's deck? Oh, absolutely. So, yes, we can say that the ship will not be immune from the storm's wrath. Now at around 6.20 p.m. on the evening of November 18, 1958, so we're looking at about 50 minutes after the Bradley goes down, because remember the Bradley sunk officially sunk at 5.30. So we take 5.30 and 6 o'clock, folks, that's 30 minutes. We had another 20 minutes. Uh, we're just 10 minutes shy of a full hour here. So 50 minutes after the Bradley sinks, the Sundew departs the U.S. Coast Guard Station from Charlevoix. I can't imagine being on this uh, ship and knowing that you are going to go out into the middle of a storm but this is something that um you have to be willing to risk. I mean, this is what part of the mil- being in the military is all about, but we should also keep in mind in 1958 folks that the Un- that the United States Coast Guard is under the Department of Transportation. Uh it wasn't until after 911, or September 11th of 2001 that the Coast Guard switched over from the Department of Transportation to what we now know as Homeland Security. As a matter of fact, the only time the Coast Guard ever came under the Department of Defense was during a time of war. So we have to keep in mind that for the vast majority of the Coast Guard's history, it, came, it served under the, under the U.S. Department of Transportation. Besides the uh, Sundew and uh, Christian Sartori heading towards the Bradley wreckage site, have other boats attempted to join the rescue search? Yes, some boats fare better in the storm, whereas other boats were forced to retreat Lake Michigan's waters by returning inland. I, I based off of what I had read from this book that there was a um, a small boat that uh, okay, that could only handle or rather accommodate four people uh, tried to leave from one of the um, islands that, you know, were uh, habited, rather, I should say, and the storm just took this boat. I mean, it's a miracle that these four individuals survived, but it was so uh, powerful that that the men were smart enough to turn around and and say, hey, we tried, but we can't, but we're just simply not able to do it. Of course, they did notify proper personnel, but yes, this is where you have to ask yourself, okay, we'll make an effort, but how far are we willing to go out into the waters, knowing that our boat is not the, not only not the right size, but it does not uh, have the uh, capacity to withstand gale force winds of just over 60 miles an hour. So, you know, for, in that situation, I would definitely say that was truly a matter of life and death, and those uh, four men were smart enough to turn uh, back inland. The sun do endures uh, sea spray and dangerous water flows as a result of a roll. And this roll was so bad, folks, that it actually put the ship's main electrical switchboard in grave danger. Think about it, folks. When water gets into, um, what do you call, electrical components of a ship, isn't it fair to say that... Um, that it will uh, offset everything. In other words, sparks, fires, the whole um, electronic box or boxes or cable units could go out of sync to where a ship could possibly blow up from within, internally. It can happen. If enough water gets in, and in the, in the uh, what do you call it, in the setting is right, sadly, you um, are, um, you are... Uh, welcoming a disaster sadly and even if it's not even if it was something beyond your control so does the main electrical switchboard go up in flames folks here no well not necessarily the secondary transmitter was unharmed but because of all this um, water flowing um, as a result of the roll. The Sundu crew does have a disadvantage. They are now unable to send long-range messages, including the ability to speak with anyone outside Channel 51. So remember, Channel 51 was is the station that deals entirely with, with the Great Lakes, the Ohio, Mississippi rivers, Atlantic, Pacific oceans. I mean, that's a lot of uh, territory right there. But let's say you can't get through to Channel 51 now. And... Here you would like to think that you can get through to someone outside of Channel 51. Now you can't. So that really puts this uh, crew at a big disadvantage. You know, sometimes it's easy to take communication for granted, especially in these uh, treacherous storms, given that November is the most uh, dangerous month out on the Great Lakes waters. You know, if the waves are right, not only can it just damage the ship, it can knock out the antennas to where there's no communication, and it would almost put you back as if you were living in a in a century before. Because think about it, folks: in the 19th century, you didn't have any electronic communications that wouldn't really come about. Maybe not until the very, very end of the 19th century and into the start of the 20th century. So we've got to keep in mind, even in the 20th century, communication itself was always always vulnerable because if the storm was just right, yeah, it could knock out um, antennas and other um, communication devices to where there would be no communication whatsoever, that is radio communication. What about the majority of the Sundew crew? Are are most of these crewmen, um, uh, what do you call it, on top levels? In other words, they're not outside, obviously, but are they on top levels or are they they, uh, below deck? I think, you know, think about this. Regardless of whether you're above or below, it's it's a very uh, rough situation to be in with the weather, but the majority of the Sundew crew remains below deck. But given how bad the floor conditions are thanks to the storm, you want to talk about ingenuity right here, folks. You want to talk about uh, dramatically reducing the chances of, um, of breaking a limb um, or even losing your life. What do the crewmen do below deck to ensure that their safety chances remain high? They go about tying themselves to tables and chairs for safety purposes. I know that seems uncomfortable, but look, if you want to survive this storm, you're going to have to do something very, very different. And you know what? If I was aboard that ship, I wouldn't have had a problem tying myself to a... um to a table or a chair in order to ensure that I would somehow still make it out alive. But one thing is, is it's safe to say is that uh, that the crew quarters totally have abandoned um, what do you call it, they have totally abandoned their um, their um, primary places for sleeping, aka the crew quarters rather I should say, because if you try going to sleep in the crew quarters Good luck trying to have any peaceful sleep whatsoever. It's just not going to happen. You might even lose your life trying to sleep peacefully, sadly. So, now we're going to um, refocus our attention on um, the four men who are um, still on that life raft. Who are those four men, folks? Well, they are the four men. Four of the 35 men who uh, made it aboard the life raft from the Carl D. Bradley, Mr. Elmer, Mr. Elmer Fleming, Mr. Frank Mays, Mr. Gary Strezelecki, and Mr. Dennis Meredith. What features does the life raft supporting these four men have? For one, the life raft has a storage compartment located in the raft center. So, if there is a storage compartment, what all might, it, what all might be inside that storage compartment that's uh, vital for uh, survival? Well, the storage compartment itself has three flares, along with a cone-shaped sea anchor, which is equipped to support the raft in heavy waters. You know, sometimes it's easy to think that oh, when someone, when a group of people are on a raft out in the middle of the ocean, or, or just out in a large body of water, um, praying for uh, a miracle that somebody will come to their aid. It's easy to think that there's nothing below the raft that's keeping them in place, and while yes, that uh, could be true, this anchor, this cone-shaped sea sea anchor, um, has been uh, dropped successfully. To where it's doing it, it's doing the job right. In other words, it's keeping all four of these men afloat. And reducing the chances of them being taken, um, I rather I should say, it's reduced their chances of going off the raft and being, um, how do you call it, being sucked, o- sucked in by a wave or being uh, taken over by a wave. Because we still got to keep in mind that many of these waves are so strong that they could knock uh, men off the boats, which obviously happened with the Bradley especially when uh, Captain Roland Bryan was doing uh, his last-ditch attempt to get everyone aboard the stern side um, as the ship would get ready to um, make its way down to the bottom of Lake Michigan, but the large wave took him off and threw everyone overboard. So, yes, the anchor was dropped successfully to where it's doing its job right. Now, by 6.30 p.m., one hour after the Bradley sank, All four men see a searchlight. This is not an ordinary searchlight. It has two sets of uh, running lights, red and green, coming their way. Didn't uh, Elmer Fleming already use a flare earlier? Yes. Did he use another one as well? He did. So that means there's only one flare left. Do you think it would be wise for Elmer? for Elmer Fleming to hold off on this flare? Yes, and he will hold off on it. This last flare will be used when a rescue ship comes closer. What do you mean by closer? Could it mean, say, 100 yards or less? Yes. If you try using your flare and you know that a ship is 500 yards away from you, which may not seem like a lot, It's not going to do you any good because um, once you've used up that last flare, it's like that old saying, game's over. I don't want to rush to judgment here, but it's best to um, use your resources wisely, which the crew is doing to the best of their ability. What ship um, did um, make its way very, very close to uh, to the life raft with the four men on there? It was the Christian Sartori. So how close did the Sartori make it to where the raft currently stood? Was it um, 125 yards, 100 yards, or 75? The answer is um, choice B, uh, right, just less than 100 yards. So, okay, if the Christian Sartori was less than 100 yards from this life raft, did they see the four crewmen of the Carl D. Bradley on the life raft? I hate to say this, folks, but they didn't. It's not that they purposely avoided them, but we have to keep in mind that there are so many things along the waters, not just of Lake Michigan, but of any great lake, or even an ocean, for that matter, that even man himself has no control over, how about the waves? No matter how big or small the waves are, the waves can can do just about anything to a, a raft or to people who are simply stranded. So the waves on Lake Michigan interfere to where the raft dropped over a wave into the lowest point, a trough. So in other words, the, the wave blocked the raft's... Block the crew people's ability on this raft to um, let it be known um, to let it be known to the uh, Sartori that hey there are actual people out there. So all four of these men are screaming at the top of their lungs. They are screaming and waving at the Sartori, but can't be heard because of how powerful nature nature's forces still remain. Well, not just the waves. How about the noise of the wind? and the noise of the waves you know it's scary to think just how powerful nature can be when it comes to these kinds of factors but at the same time no matter how no matter how hard you yell no matter how hard, hard you flail your arms or wave a flare in the air with your hand that is mother nature always has other surprises up her sleeve that we can't control it's a double-edged sword, to say the least. So, where, where does the Sartori go? The Sartori now moves into the opposite direction where the Bradley went down. So, for during the, this past hour, the raft has endured being swept away by wind and waves to where any search effort or rescue attempt will have to wait until daybreak after sunrise. So that means, folks, that the uh, Bradley crewmen, that is the four crewmen, are going to have to pretty much wait until sunrise for any hope that a ship will see them and with the hope that with faith onto itself that they will get through this night. Did uh, Christian Sartori crew spot anything clue-wise pertaining to the Bradley yes uh, they did Uh, the crewman spotted remnants of a red light being a flare to a crewman's raincoat so if you've spotted a crewman's raincoat that is a a possibility right there that perhaps um, a crewman died or that um, a, a rain jacket or a raincoat was not able to be put on, to be put on right away, or in enough time because of how quick the boat went down. The bottom line is, it's there and it's evidence. What has uh, communication been like since word first got out about the Bradleys' disappearance? Okay, so. Remember, like I said early on, folks, you know, we have to think about this. We're in 1958, and, you know, many American um, homes are equipped with televisions. There are a couple of different ways that you could get access to news, through a television, through a radio. And, of course, you can get the news in a newspaper. but we will have to rule out newspaper here, folks, because usually when something is reported first on television in 1958, more often than not, this is just the way I see it, more often than not, then the newspapers will go about doing their story. That's just the way I see it. That's just my take on it. But really, there are two main ways in 1958 that you could go about learning the news right away, and that is through television and on um, radio. But how is it fair to say that communication, what has the communication been like since word first got out about the Bradleys' disappearance? That is, for the people of Rogers City. Well, for starters, the people in Rogers City, they are unified in shock and confusion. In other words, they all agree that what has happened is just beyond um, unimaginable. Here is this ship that's 31 years old, has set numerous records for hauling cargo. She, at one time, was truly the flagship of the Bradley fleet. Of course, now the uh, John G. Munson has taken over that status, which it did back in '52. But even so, the Bradley is still a revered ship by so many people. After all, the Bradley still uh would have had um, CEOs and top level business people um be given grand tours of the ship and perhaps an even what do you call it, like a um a, a nice boat ride along Lake Michigan or Lake Huron for entertainment purposes. But you know, ships don't live forever. Uh, ships do have to be replaced. I mean, in other words, what I mean by replaced, replacement here is that they do need to have um, new installations put in. I mean, after all, the Bradley was supposed to get a new $800,000 installation for uh, equipment, uh, especially with regards to her hull. And now look what's happened. So yes, people are, shock, are in shock, but they're also confused. Why are they confused? Is it because maybe they don't want to believe what has happened? or It could be that maybe they, they don't want to believe that what has been said to have, have happened has in fact really taken place. And at the same time, nobody, including officials at Michigan Lime or Bradley Transportation Company, are 100% aware of whether or not any Bradley crewmen remain alive on Lake Michigan's waters. So we really have to take into consideration here, folks, that that uh, people who are working at Michigan Lime and in, in a chemical company as well as Bradley Transportation Company They are just as in shock in a state of confusion like everyday ordinary citizens are in Rogers City whom uh, work at these companies. However, the top level people have to be careful about what they say out in the open. I mean, for one, they could probably only say, but so much, but two, if if they say too much information and they get all that information wrong, then it will backfire on them. So isn't it fair to say that everybody, everybody needs to get their facts straight? before reaching a final conclusion. I think that's a lesson that, um, that has been sadly forgotten in today's world, um, not to get off track, but too many people rush to judgment in certain situations and they don't get their facts straight and, and all they care about is um, instant gratification to where once they think they've reached their conclusion and In some some instances it can result in uh, Firing someone from their job For all the wrong reasons It can result in um, making accusations About someone that um, That were Allegedly to be true Only to be um, false So the bottom line is, is That no matter What we want to believe sometimes What we think ought to be true Is not always the truth So The people working at at the top level at Michigan Lyman Chemical Company as well as Bradley Transportation Company are not trying to um, hide anything from the public. They're trying to get their facts straight. They don't want to say one thing and then have to tell something else to the families, especially the families of these 35 men who are, who are out on the waters of Lake Michigan. So we got to take the broader picture, folks, into consideration here. The Port of Calcite, um, which is one of the uh, biggest ports along the Great Lakes, the Port of Calcite's uh, gatekeepers hold firm to standard protocol procedures regarding information that will will remain in place until Bradley crewman families are notified. In other words, if someone wants to ask one of the gatekeepers something about the matter, the gatekeepers will say only what is appropriate and necessary, but it will obviously come from um, officials above, and that's it. If the gatekeepers say anything else, yeah, they might as well be out of a job. In other words, protocol needs to be followed here, folks. Once the Bradley crewman families are notified, then the gatekeepers will go about advising the public of whatever else is appropriate and necessary to share. However, the only other thing that the uh, Calcite, the Port of Calcite gatekeepers can uh, advise the, um, the public, or just people in, in general in Rogers City, is that the Bradley is due to arrive into Rogers City at 2 a.m., being November 19th. So we still are wanting to hold out for hope. Why wouldn't you? If not, then you're not helping the cause, what are um, Harvey and Janice Clan responsible for maintaining? Who are Harvey and Janice Clan? Are they residents of Rogers City? Yes, they are. They run, the, what's, they run a radio station called WHAK. Of course, we would say WAC radio station, but I will call it WHAK radio station that is located right in Rogers City. They have been um, they've had a busy night on November 18, 1958. They've even agreed to keep their radio station open so that if locals have any uh, questions, you know, they will certainly answer them to the best of their ability. but at the same time, they also know that even they too are officers of the community and and know that hey, whatever they share with uh, people calling in, can either make or break their rep their image as well so in other words it's one thing if a, a local calls in and wants to know information you as the um, radio station person have to be careful what you say over the airwaves because if you say information that's um, not appropriate to share at that moment good luck trying to recant the statement So besides answering requests from the locals, the clans will also be confronted by newspaper reporters calling into the station. And we're not just talking local newspaper stations, uh, folks, like whether, say, Rogers City or from Charlevoix or from uh, Traverse City. We're talking about newspaper reporters all the way... From as far out as cities like Boston, New York, and Chicago, and I could see Chicago because Chicago is right on Lake Michigan. Chicago's feeling the impacts of this storm. But think about it: even in 1958, for uh, cities as far away as Boston and New York, getting this story—that's a big deal. Nowadays, anybody can get a story in a heartbeat, even if you don't live in the same country where the story, where the incident itself is happening. Scary in a way, but that's sadly the world we were in. I'm not here to say technology is bad, folks. I mean, yes, technology can be a good thing, but at the same time, if the technology is abused, that is not a good thing. Harvey Klein will take will be taking a careful approach, or rather, I should say, a stance with regards to information sharing. He does get asked by various media outlets to interview the Bradley Crewman families. Does Harvey Klan fall for the bait? No. He refuses to take part in this request. Why so, folks? Because Harvey Klan and his wife know many of the families whose loved ones are missing. He doesn't want to risk jeopardizing the friendships that that he has made with these families of loved ones missing to adding further unnecessary stress, or what I would think of as emotional tension. You know, trust is important. It should still be important even in today's world, but it would be easy to think that you could, you know, trust people, but sometimes we can't trust everyone. We'd like to think that, you know, a person's handshake would still mean something, but but even that is something of a, of, of a product of a bygone era. You know, it's one thing to tell something to someone, but you better make sure you're telling the right person, because if it turns out you're not telling the, the information to the right person... That other person's got uh, him or herself a field day, and, um, and sharing information to others who don't need to know about uh, who don't need to know about um, the matter that was uh, brought to them uh, beforehand. So I applaud uh, Harvey Klon for not um, for not falling for the uh, media outlets' bait. And is it fair to say that had the media, had Harvey Klahn fallen for for the media outlet's bait, that the media outlet, um, these media outlets would have failed themselves by not getting their facts entirely straight? Absolutely so. For those whom don't live in Rogers City, how are they best described? They are best described as being outsiders. But we have to remember too, folks. Roger City is no Chicago, Illinois. It's all—it's no Detroit, Michigan. Roger City is not even anywhere close to ten thousand people. It's just uh, just above four thousand, which seems like a decent number. But we have to remember, even four thousand is small. But it's a—it's best uh, described as a place that could be seen by many as a wide spot in the road. And what I mean by a wide spot in the road is that once you're there, once you arrive to the first stoplight and you go past that first stoplight, you've not only had you just arrived, but you had just left before you even knew it. However, um, many people are happy in Rogers City, and we'll find out here in, uh, momentarily. But by 1958, exactly how old is Rogers City? Is Rogers City. 125 years old, is it between 80 and 85 years old, or is it um, less than 80 to 85 years old? Choice B, folks, Roger City is between 80 to 85 years old. It is actually 81 years old. It was officially established in 1877, one year after Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. 1877, folks, uh, 12 years after the Civil War officially ended, and by 1877, the uh, Reconstruction Era, that is, um, that was the uh, process of uh, readmitting all the southern states back into the Union, is now coming to an end. So, when Rogers City was first established in 1877, it became a mecca for lumber and commercial fishing trades. Whom exactly is Rogers City, Michigan named after? William E. Rogers, who is a land speculator from New York. So, yes, the lumber industry helped pave the way for the shipping industry's success. How so? Well, for one, if the shipping industry was to be successful, you had to have docks be built. And where would those docks have been built around, folks? Lake Huron. And where would the goods have been sent? Northward or southward? Southward to Detroit. So you've got an outlet down south where this lumber can go. Not just can go, but can be transported to uh, places inland, not only like Detroit, but cities uh, outside of Detroit as well. But by the start of the 20th century, the boom in the lumber industry has declined dramatically to where now Roger City is going to have to find a way to reinvent itself. Who is uh, Henry Henshaw? That's spelled H I N D S H A W. I have no doubts that me- most of you don't know who this man is, but I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, so hey, I could say we're on the same page right here. Uh, Henry Henshaw w- was a geologist from Syracuse, New York. He became the lead person behind surveying limestone near Rogers City. With help from another investor, the Michigan Limestone and Chemical Company was founded. Is this not um, an act of what we would call a savior's act? Oh, I would say so, yes. It looks like, after all folks, Rogers City might have some uh, new life in it. Now, what year did uh, Carl Bradley himself take over as general manager of the Michigan Limestone and Chemical Company? Was it in uh, 1911? Was it in um, 1915? Or was it in um, 1909? The answer is 1911. Carl Bradley was just over 50 years of age. So he's not that old, folks. He's still in the prime of his life. Interesting enough, it's probably fair to say that he was born just before or right after the Civil War broke out. Carl Bradley's big contributions pertain to overseeing ships being constructed for transporting various types of limestone to ports throughout the Great Lakes, as well as being involved in Rogers City Civic Affairs. Well, hey, if you're going to make a name for yourself somewhere, especially in a small town, you might as well be involved in the town. And it's not all about the money. It's also about bringing in the jobs. It's also ensuring that people will stay not just short term, but long term. So it's fair to say that Carl, Mr. Carl D. Bradley is a philanthropist. Isn't it fair to say that even Mr. Henshaw, even though, yes, he's a geologist, is it fair to say that even he did some kind of philanthropical work? Yes. Everybody has contributed, big and small, to help ensuring that uh, Roger City will experience a renaissance, a rebirth. Now, let me ask you this: Was, uh, real quick, was Carl D. Bradley himself alive when when the, uh, Bradley ship sank in 1958? Uh, no. It turns out that, uh, Carl D. Bradley died one year after the Bradley ship first, um, sailed along Lake Michigan's waters, or uh, Lake Huron's, rather. He, um, I had read, um, online where he had, um, died either of a, of a heart attack or a stroke, and he was only in his late 60s when he died, but he died uh, just before the Great Depression um, be, uh, took place, or the stock market crash of 1929 took place, so he died around 1927 or 1928. Rogers City, Rogers City residents are very happy with where they live. And don't wish to leave, given so many of the townspeople are employed at the Michigan Lime and uh, Chemical Company as well as Bradley Transportation uh, Company. Why is it fair to say that Ro- many of Roger City's residents are, are happy with where they live? Well, for one, people look after one another. Jobs are passed down from one generation to another. In other words, if a father works as a sailor along the Great Lakes waters his son will will follow his uh, footsteps. After all, you know, when one graduates from City High in Rogers City, they either be- become a sailor or they work at the Port of Calcite or with the uh, Michigan Lime Bradley Transportation Company. The bottom line is is that if if a vast majority of your population is working at these places and the benefits have been great, I mean, the opportunities for advancement are great. Why would you go somewhere else? I'm not saying that you couldn't go somewhere else, but, it, but if you're really happy in the small town, then you might as well stay and keep the um, torch alive for future generations to come. Here's a question we really should uh, think about now. How has the first report, or rather the initial reports behind the Carl D. Bradley's disappearance impacted the Rogers City community? People, or rather I should say many people, are in shock, considering that the Bradley Transportation Company has never experienced anything like this until now. Think about this, uh, folks. The Bradley Transportation Company has a stellar record. They've never lost a ship. Very few shipping companies can say that. But it's also fair to say that a sense of innocence has been stripped from the community. I believe it's fair to say that for people in small town, when uh, tragic events or a tragic um, news allegation like this has been revealed, that it really only happens in the bigger cities. But we've got to keep in mind that no matter how big or small of a place you live in, a tragic event can occur, and it can um, have profound uh, ways on, on how people um, view the circumstances before them. So, nobody's immune. So, how are the people of Rogers City going to uh, be handling this situation in the present moment? We have to remember, our sources of uh, communication are very limited in 1958. You know, yes, we can call into the, um, into the WHAK radio station. We could um, call, we could um, drive up to the Port of Calcite and ask one of those uh, gatekeepers if they know of any information. Sure, we can call the Bradley Transportation Company and ask if they know of anything, but they're going to only give the um, residents or the people of the community limited information, and it makes sense to do that because nobody wants to rush to judgment just yet. We don't want to make a decision decision where we say something and then it backfires on us, and then we then top level officials won't be able, will have difficulty in re, in recanting what they originally had said. So, the people of Rogers City are going to turn to one another for support, considering that a great number of of her people know one another in some type of form, whether it's through work, being uh, neighbors on the street, family, acquaintances. That's how um, people are going to get through this initial um, news response. You know, um, yes, it's very, like I said earlier, it's very easy to take communication for granted. But we also have to be reminded of how people uh, dealt, of how people um, managed to survive in terms of uh, communication access um, some 60 years back. You know, when they first heard the news about something, that was um profound and stunning yes it was a um it was hard to fathom but yet they waited patiently for whatever other news came their way so basically they had to follow a process protocol for how they would go about learning the news firsthand and then following the chain of events that followed once the next series of of news event of uh, news information was relayed yes it may have been in a snail's pace but hey isn't it fair to say that even um company officials had to make the most out of a four letter word called time yeah because with time you get they got their facts straight they got their they would get their information correct and even if it was the news that they didn't want to have to bring to those whom, who have loved ones missing, the bottom line is that they will have time on their side to be able to get it right. Let's think about that. Just, just think about that, folks, because in today's time, yes, we have time, but when it comes to the news and all that I really question sometimes whether or not news reporters value the whole time process because it's all about what sells. Isn't it fair to say that maybe the news media outlets in 1958 were desperate to try to pressure Mr. Harvey Klawn into sharing information? Not just sharing information, but perhaps interviewing families of the crew whose uh, loved ones were lost, were missing out on the waters? Yes, but thank heavens. Um, Mr. Klon had enough smarts to say, no, I'm not going to risk ruining my friendships with these people. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and thank you again for listening as always. All of you are uh, wonderful listeners, and thank you for getting the word out to those out there who want to um, learn about history, even if it's about uh, subjects or topics that had never been uh, discussed before or you know that they've never you know learned about until now keep getting the word out because the more the word gets out the greater the audience not just the greater the audience but the greater the audience expands after all I've gotten over 11,300 plays and I'm not flaunting it I'm, I'm stating it because the audience has expanded Thanks to you all who have been listening since June of last year. Well, thank you again for all, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I am on the air next, we're going to, one of the things we're going to learn about is hypothermia and the different types of hypothermia, because one of the uh, crewmen aboard this raft is going to be um, facing life and death because of the uh, hypothermia shock he uh, endured after getting aboard the raft. We will learn some other things as well. But nonetheless, um, thank you again for your time and um, have a great Friday as well as upcoming weekend no matter where you all live in the world and stay safe.